0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag, with your host, Misha Zelinsky. G'day,
1: welcome to Diplomates, I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Rob Wilcox. Rob is the Federal Legal Director at Everytown for Gun Safety, the leading gun safety movement in the United States. A qualified commercial lawyer, Rob's life changed forever when his family was tragically touched by gun violence. I caught up with Rob for a chinwag. About the US gun violence epidemic, the political polarization underpinning this issue, what sensible reform looks like, how to build a movement for change from the ground up, role of the Second Amendment in gun ownership. Misinformation online, and whether meaningful change is indeed possible. It's a really insightful conversation on an issue that touches many people. A big thanks to Rob for coming on the show to share his personal story. He's a great guy and he's tackling an issue uh, that really needs to be addressed in the United States. Just a little bit of housekeeping uh, here at Diplomates, we've partnered with the team at Diamantia Media. Uh, that's the team who give you the Batuta Advocate, amongst other things. So super excited about that and pleased to be part of uh, that growing stable shows obviously uh this show's highly comedic so it's a great fit but they've also home to one of my favorite podcasts the jolly swagman podcast hosted by my mate joe walker if you haven't already listened to it uh, it's a brilliant show uh, he digs in some really interesting intellectual conversations with all types of global leaders uh, mark cuban for one uh, he also had malcolm turnbull on recently um if you couldn't get enough of malcolm on my show check it out. It's a great podcast. You'll really love it. On a personal note, uh, I'm going to be heading over to Washington, D.C. shortly to study uh, political warfare and the restoration of democracy. For those of you listening, is this a chance to plug my Fulbright scholarship again? Look, yes, it is. But of course, this is my podcast. I'm going to do what I want. But I've also got some really cool interviews lined up for when I'm over there. Uh, So do keep your eyes peeled for those. As ever, if you are enjoying the show and you haven't yet rated the show with five stars and reviewed it, please jump on and do that continue to share it with your mates. We're growing all the time and it does help get the word out there. Without any further jibbering from me, enjoy the episode. Rob, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us, mate. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And you're joining us from the United States, so uh, much appreciated given the time zone differences. Now, we're going to you know, dig right into the issue of, of gun violence and gun control and gun safety. Um, it's an issue that, you know, I'm sort of very interested in. I know a lot of Australians uh, are very interested in particularly sort of scratching their heads at this size of this problem. So before we sort of get into the sort of, you know, the problem itself and the solution, I thought we might start with some of the stats around guns and the stats around the gun violence problem. I mean, I, sort of just looking uh, before we were uh, getting ready for our chat, there's more than one gun, for example, in the United States than people. So more more than one gun per person. When you think about the fact that there's kids, obviously there's elderly, uh, there's people that are in hospital, there's people that are uh, in prison. Um, and so there's more guns floating around. So there's people there with multiple, multiple firearms. Maybe you could start with some of the stats, for how bad the problem is and maybe whether or not it's getting better or worse.
0: Yeah, look, uh, I think there, there's two two points there, right? One is gun ownership in America, and one is gun violence. And, you know, I think the best estimates are that about a third of American households have firearms. So even though you're right that there's one per person, that doesn't mean that there's one in every home. Uh, and this country does have a kind of long and rich tradition of gun ownership. And, you know, in fact, my family owns guns. So it's not something that's kind of, that I haven't been around, that I don't know about. But, you know, that's very different than guns that end up in the wrong hands and the tragedies that are just far too frequent. So the second point about gun violence, like, you know, the issue we have here is that 100 Americans are dying every single day from gun violence, over 200 are injured. And it's about 40,000 a year, and that's every single year. And it's all types of gun violence. It's, you know, the, these mass tragedies that maybe break through into national, international news. But it's also everyday gun violence in our communities. And it's firearm suicide that happens in the privacy of our homes and intimate partner or domestic violence. So, you know, the firearm in the wrong hands ha- has kind of ripple effects throughout our communities in all sorts of different ways.
1: And would you say, I mean, you've been activists in this space, would you say the problem's getting better or, or worse? Because, I mean, it, from an outsider's point of view, it feels like it's getting worse. I don't know whether or not that's supported empirically in the data.
0: Look, what we've seen during this COVID-19 pandemic that's been a kind of global health pandemic is a epidemic within that in this country. And that's the fact that gun violence has gotten worse. We saw more gun violence in 2020 than in the decades preceding it. So even if some of those mass shootings that might not make the headlines haven't occurred with the same frequency, we've seen the same terror happening day in and day out to families and communities. So, you know, from my perspective, it's getting worse and it demands immediate action
1: and when you look at I suppose you, you'd be looking at the problem in America but no doubt you benchmark yourself against other nations uh, like Australia or comparable nations like Canada and uh, European nations um, do you think it's a that America is somehow a more violent society or do you see that this is a problem about guns themselves
0: Look, America is exceptional in terms of its gun violence. Um, If you look at kind of 25 peer nations, um, you know, our, our rates of gun violence are multiple times higher. And and that's because we have easy access to guns. We have for people who shouldn't have them. And we have loopholes. Do we have more mental health issues? No. Do we have more violent video games? No. Do we have more violent movies? No. Uh, but what we do have is access to guns for those who are a threat to themselves or others. And and that to me is what is fueling our uniquely American problem.
1: And so we'll get back to, I suppose, this, this macro problem. I thought um, if you don't mind, you might share a little bit with us about your personal story um, and and what prompted you to perhaps to become an activist for change in this space. Uh, Your family was touched uh, by gun violence very deeply, very tragically. I was wondering if you might share that story uh, with uh, with us, please.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking, because I think it's important for us to share our stories so that we can see the humanity and hopefully inspire change. But like I said, I mean, I I grew up with guns and I grew up learning how to shoot from my father. Uh, And so I, I see the kind of the family tradition that comes with gun ownership. But I've also seen the other side of it in my life. And I and I saw it before I even graduated college. I grew up in Brooklyn. And so I saw gun violence in my community, kind of both being aware of it, seeing it on the kind of everyday local news. Um, but it wasn't until uh, my senior year in college back in 2001, when I was abroad, actually in Australia, um, you know, visiting, touring, being with friends, that I got a call that I, I never expected to get, which was my 19-year-old cousin who was... At home for winter break from her college in Northern California, kind of a safe, sleepy place, uh, was killed. And she was killed by someone who shouldn't have had a gun. She she was home from winter break from Haverford College, and she was volunteering at her local mental health hospital, right, just set, checking people in, being of service to her community. That's who she was. She was this bright, brilliant light. And you know, the day that she was killed, she wasn't even supposed to work, but somebody called out sick. She stepped up. And, you know, what we what we learned is one of the former patients walked in with firearms, walked up and killed her, killed others. When the police responded, he then made his way to a restaurant and killed others. It was kind of a deadly day for that community. Didn't make national news, but it kind of inspired me and inspired my aunt and uncle and inspired other advocates to get involved. And and that's kind of fueled me and allowed me to learn about this issue from a very personal perspective um, and, and meet kind of thousands of survivors along the way and take a number of steps to kind of make myself educated about our gun laws and about the solutions that would be effective at preventing the kind of tragedy that that I've seen.
1: And just you've touched on them I in mean, this incident And so sorry, obviously, for your loss, Matt, it's an awful story. That's, you know, it's all too common, unfortunately, uh, in the U.S. Um, you this occurred at a mental health uh, hospital. I mean, what's the role of mental illness uh, in gun violence, do you see? I mean, are these things correlated? You talk about the wrong people having access to firearms. Do you see those things closely, linked?
0: It's definitely not correlated, or nor is there a causation. Folks with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators of violence. So I, I don't tell that story to kind of cast dispersions on those who have mental illness, especially those seeking treatment But for individuals who are in crisis, who are a threat to themselves or others, well, then we need to do something to make sure they don't have access to guns. And, you know, this individual, his family was concerned. His brother was in law enforcement, knew we shouldn't have had guns, but there was no steps that could be taken. They actually tried to go through a mental health process to get him involuntarily committed. That didn't work. And so what they really needed was the kind of law that we call an extreme risk protection order, which is a court process to temporarily remove firearms from someone who's a threat to themselves or others. And frankly, that's a law that my aunt and uncle worked to get passed in California. And it's a law that we see in 19 states now, red, blue and purple. uh, And we're working on it at the federal level as well.
1: And so, I mean, that's a a good time to raise this organization work for every town. Um, For uh, listeners that aren't familiar with it, maybe you can explain uh, who that organization is, what its purpose is, and uh, why you see that as a place, I suppose, affect the change you're trying to make.
0: Yeah, town for Gun Safety is an incredible organization. It, it brings together kind of data-driven research, evidence-based solutions, as, as well as kind of a grassroots component. It kind of brings together this notion that we need to be fighting for evidence-based policies that respect the Second Amendment, not just with our words and on paper, but with the power of people. And so we brought together survivors of gun violence activists around the country, mayors, students, law enforcement, gun owners, all to join in this effort. And right now we have 6 million supporters that we work with around the country at that local state and federal level and in boardrooms, all looking to make the change that will make the difference.
1: And so just want to turn to US gun culture. You talked about at the beginning a little bit about the culture of gun ownership and how it's sort of embedded um, in, I suppose, US uh, cultural identity. I mean, what do you see, I mean, how do you see that as being kind of critical to this debate? Because, I mean, many times this gets raised, the Second Amendment gets raised, and then people go right back to 1776 and, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and, you know, uh, the, the the war of independence against the British and, you know, the, don't take away my guns because you know, it's going to stop us from being able to overthrow tyranny, et cetera. That is a very powerful uh, cultural touchstone. It's obviously an important legal thing. But this cultural link to gun ownership, um, you know, why do you think it exists and how does it influence, I suppose, the work you're trying to do? Yeah,
0: I think if we look back and really take a long view, you know, what I would say is from the beginning of this country, you know, guns were tools, guns were around, they were tools for freedom. As you mentioned, they, they were tools for survival, for hunting and defense. They were also at times tools for oppression. It'd be that violence against others or in kind of, keeping alive the the slave system that we had in this country. So I think all of those were parts of our founding or all those are pieces that we have to reckon with. And yes, we have a second amendment on the books and that's been interpreted. And what we fight for are the policies that respect the rights of law-abiding, responsible Americans to own firearms, but seek to make it more difficult for those who, who who shouldn't have access to them. And if you kind of both look historically and at the public opinion, it all fits you know for as long as we've had the second amendment we've had laws about gun ownership in this country about who can't and can't have guns about the regulations about how you store them and and how you use them right so these aren't gun laws aren't new and that's why they're consistent with the second amendment And the truth is, even though we have kind of a small minority of vocal advocates who think that we shouldn't have a single gun law on the books, the fact is 90 percent of Americans think we should have background checks. And that includes vast majorities of Democrats, Republicans, independents, gun owners, even NRA members. So if you think about the kind of policies we're fighting for, they're both constitutional and they're popular. And, And that's our work, right? And that's the work of a rather new organization, which is to bring that power to fight for the change that we want.
1: I'm keen to dig into that political change piece and I want to have a long conversation about that. Just staying with the gun culture piece. The other bit that you know, you've talked about this sort of this uh the right to bear arms and and the importance of law-abiding citizens having that right, which I think, you know, people wouldn't argue with. Um The other bit that I kind of want to touch on is, you know, from an Australian point of view, I'd call it the John Wayne fantasy, if I'm caught that. It's this notion that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And therefore, um, you know, having armed citizens is the best way to stop someone, uh, you know, doing something horrendous in the community, uh, you know, opening fire on innocent people, et cetera. Is this a real kind of construct or is it a bit of a sort of a fantasy that never actually plays out in that fashion?
0: The best way to stop a tragedy is to make sure that the person who's at risk to themselves or others doesn't have a gun in the first place. Um, right? Are there situations with someone with a firearm can stop a tragedy from happening? Yes, those have occurred. They occur with law enforcement on the scene. They've occurred with law-abiding citizens have used a firearm in self-defense. Those things happen. But the truth is, if you really want to address gun violence and what we see in our country, then we need to focus on the interventions that work. And that's about intervening before someone takes that step to commit the act and to prevent them from getting guns in the first place. You know, you think about school shootings in America, right? I mean, that's, it's something that's horrific. It's uniquely American and it's prevalent. But if you look at the data, right? You actually look at the data of all of these incidents over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, things become very clear, very quickly. One is that those shootings are almost always committed by students. Two is that those students almost always show warning signs that concern people around them. And three is that 80% of the time that gun's coming from the home, right? So what that means is we got to think about our students and those who are in crisis. We got to take steps to intervene, to put them on the right path and ensure they're not on the wrong path. And as parents, we need to make sure that our kids don't have access to guns in our home. That's how you can actually get at that issue of school shootings. And it has nothing to do with Do we need teachers who are armed? Do we need high school seniors carrying guns? Do we need to turn schools into prisons? Do we need to have a zero tolerance policy? None of those things will actually work or get at this root cause, which is kids who are in crisis and taking the steps to make sure that they both are getting services, but also don't have access to guns.
1: And so, you know, we've touched on the second amendment, I think as we've been going along, it's the sort of the elephant in the room um, when it comes to this debate and any sort of policy changes. you know, for those that aren't super wonks uh, in this space, maybe you can just explain a little bit how it impacts on it, but also I suppose kind of the way that the Supreme Court plays a role within this process, because it's interpretations of the second amendment, the way it's been perhaps advances and setbacks um, in that process, um, you know, how do you see it? And and, and is is essentially a a sort of immovable roadblock uh, in terms of actually making changes that you're talking about?
0: It's definitely not an immovable roadblock. That's the first thing I would say. But if we actually were to look at the text of this amendment, it says a well-regulated militia right. being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And and so there's a lot in that one sentence, including multiple commas and a, and a ton to unpack. And our Supreme Court has looked at it and ruled that it protects the individual right to have a, a firearm in common use in your home, but that there is room for reasonable regulation. Even the person, the, the justice who wrote that the opinion that defined the Second Amendment, Justice Antoine Scalia, you know, he talked about the type of regulations that are uh, permissible in, in terms of, you know, felons in possession of guns, keeping guns out of schools, and other kind of common sense, you know, regulations we can put in place that will keep guns out of the wrong hands. So... So, so no, I think that you know while we've had the Second Amendment for as long as this country's been around, we've also had gun laws that get at this very core point of how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them.
1: Well, I think that's right. It's an interesting point you raised because I think, yeah the well-regulated militia piece, I think, is a point that a lot of people tend to ignore, I suppose, when they're talking about the you know, people's right to bear arms should not be infringed. I mean, it doesn't strike me as inalienable because we say, you can't have a nuclear bomb, right? So there is some sort of, you can't have a tank. So there is a limit, already there is a limit. I think anyone that's not completely crazy would agree with that. So it is where you are drawing the line. But I guess the question I have for you is the way it's being interpreted, given the way that the court is currently composed now with more conservative justices, are you confident that if gun wars, let's let's imagine a world where Congress were to pass Uh, gun uh, gun uh, uh, amendment type laws. Are you confident that the court would uphold those types of changes? Yeah,
0: every single law that I've been working on at the federal level, every action that's being proposed by President Biden is constitutional and multiple courts have upheld them. Uh, You know, we we do have the Supreme Court will be taking up a Second Amendment case this year. And so we're going to potentially get another decision from them about kind of the scope of the Second Amendment and what it protects. Uh, but, but the truth is, I mean, as, as you said, you know, different types of, of weapons are regulated in this country in a host of different ways. You have kind of on the one hand bombs and tanks. But even when you look at firearms, right, you have fully automatic weapons, machine guns that have been regulated since the 1930s. You've had regulations and prohibitions on semi-automatic rifles that are military style. So they take the tactical magazines and, and have kind of the, the, the features of a military style weapon. Uh, and you've had background checks on, on gun sales so so we have a, a on just you know your handgun and, and hunting rifle so we've had a host of different types of regulations based on the type of weapon and they've all been upheld as constitutional so I think the, the things that we're working on that will make a real difference uh, would all be upheld by this court
1: and so what is sensible reform I mean you, you've touched on I suppose there's probably what you consider to be perhaps ideal and you know maybe that's not achievable. So, like, what do you firstly see as achievable and what would be an ideal outcome? And I suppose the other thing is, has got curious is, you know, Australia went through this process itself a long time ago now. When I was young, um, we had the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania uh, uh, where over 30 people were shot. That's our largest mass shooting, and it sort of startled the country at the time. We had a Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard, who amended the gun laws, and, and, and thankfully they remain in place. Today, though, there are attempts to weaken them. Is Australia a bit of a a model in this space or is it a kind of, again, we have compulsory voting and other sorts of things that are just impossible in the United States?
0: Uh, You know, look, I focus on this issue of gun violence in America through the lens of the kind of constitution, laws, tradition, history of the United States. And so I, while I'm aware of what's happened internationally in other countries, what I focus on is, you know, what we have to deal with here. And, and I think when I look at that history and I look at our culture and I look at our constitution and I look at the laws we have on the books and frankly, the loopholes, I see a lot of opportunity to make significant progress. I'll give you one example. You know, right now in this country, since 1993, we say that if a gun is sold at a licensed gun dealer, there has to be a background check. That's effectively stopped over 4 million folks who are prohibited from buying guns from those dealers. And most people go to a dealer to buy a gun but there is a secondary market and you know, that's not insignificant where people can go and buy a gun without a background check. And I've taken a look at this, right. And there's on just one website, I found 1.2 million ads over a year where you could buy a gun without a background check.
1: Contact so, so someone. Just ask a question? How easy, yeah. maybe you can explain how easy in Australia, I wouldn't even know how to start to get a gun. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, if I looked into it, I'm sure I could get one and my grandfather owned guns and he was part of you know, a gun club, but, uh, you know, I would not even know where to buy one, <laughs> what permits I need, et cetera. How easy is it for, I? Yeah, you know, if I just decide woke up and I'm a citizen in the US, I'm living in the US and decide I want to buy a gun, maybe you could just step out how easy that would be.
0: Each state has different laws. So I think just for simplicity, uh, I'll focus on the federal laws. And under the federal law, if I want to buy a firearm, I'd have to go to a licensed gun store. And there's thousands of those in this country, and and they're not easy to find because they're all publicly listed. They're businesses. You know, if you want to buy, uh, you know, a Nintendo, you go to Best Buy. If you want to buy a firearm, you go to the gun store. And when you go, you pick out the firearm you want. Then you fill out a form, a form 4473. You put your information down. You have to show your ID to prove who you are. And then that gun dealer will submit that information to the FBI or the state agency to run a background check. And they're going to check to see if you're prohibited under a number of categories, um, federally or under your state law. And if it comes back green, then you can buy the gun. If it comes back uh, red, then you can't. And then you've been denied that purchase. Uh, And one of the things we think is that information needs to get out to law enforcement. so They can investigate those cases. And, you know, so if you're law abiding, you're a responsible citizen, that's the process. As you go to the gun store, you pick out the firearm and you pass your background check. How
1: long does that take?
0: So, you know, for 90% of these cases, it happens within minutes because it's a, it's a database that is searched by the FBI and uh, it, it can occur kind of, you know, with alacrity.
1: And so if I knew that I'd likely be knocked back, you sort of talked about these loopholes, how, you know, how could I get a gun going around that system?
0: So that is the loophole, right? That you can go onto this, you know, a website. And, you know, you can search for exactly the gun you want, and you can say where you want to buy it, and a bunch of ads will pop up and say, like, in this city, these guns are available. So you click contact seller, and you get connected to this individual, this perfect stranger. And, you know, maybe start as an email becomes a phone call, and you say, you know, I'd like to buy that handgun, I have, you know, $400 in cash, where where can we meet? And, you know, we've done some investigation, and I've seen how these transactions go. And, the person will say, "Meet me in this parking lot," and so you go to the parking lot. Um, guy shows you the gun. I've seen this videotape footage. You hand over the cash, and the transaction is done in you know two to three minutes.
1: And is that gun registered anywhere, or I'm just trying to understand, or is it, it sort of disappears into the community?
0: Yeah. Did, did, there's no record that, that comes with that firearm or that transaction. You know, Each firearm that's commercially made in this country has a serial number. So if it's ever recovered in crime, you can trace it back to who, who first made it, what company, who that company distributed it to, and, and who that dealer first sold it to. But after that first sale, that trail can go cold pretty quickly, right? Because if they sold you a gun from the dealer, and then you sold it to me, and then I sold it to someone else, and that person sold to a third person... Even if that gun's traced, maybe they find you, right? And they say, "Okay, who'd you sell that gun to?" And you say, "You know, it was it was this guy. I had on my podcast. You know, we met for about
1: an hour, never in person." <laughs> I'd uh, be the wrong guy to buy a gun from, mate. I, was, I think I made it pretty clear. I wouldn't know where to begin. <laughs> and, and but you might
0: not even remember my name, right? And, and yeah. or where I live, and so law enforcement can't do anything with that, right? The trail trail goes cold, and that's one reason we need background checks on every gun sale, so that. Even if you and I meet, however we meet, online or at a gun show or in the neighborhood, there's gonna be a background check. And then that record of that sale would be stored at a gun store.
1: And so I have probably sort of derailed the conversation there slightly, but just getting back to like, you know, what are the three things maybe to say, because I know there's so many, right? But if there was three things you could say, these are three things on, uh, on Rob's wish list to fix the problem of gun violence tomorrow, what would be the three things that you wanna get done?
0: Look, I think the first thing is we need a background check on every single gun that's sold. There's absolutely no reason that a stranger should sell a gun to another stranger with with no background check and no knowledge if that person is prohibited or not. Uh, You know, the second thing that I think is really important are these extreme risk laws, which are tools that family members and law enforcement can use to temporarily remove firearms from someone who a court finds is a risk to themselves or others. And, you know, the third thing that, that I think is critically important is regulations on what's called ghost guns. These firearms that have escaped regulation and exist without any serial number and, and any information about them that should be regulated just like firearms. Uh, and, and I think those three things would would be really critically important and, and can make an impact in all types of gun violence, uh, from gun trafficking to mass shootings, to firearm suicide. And, and I think that that could make a make a real impact.
1: Do you have an issue around the types of guns? Like, so not not all guns are the same, right? So you've talked about automatics and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of talk about AR-15s, uh, which have been used in some of these mass shootings, which is essentially a paramilitary type uh, weapon. It's very sophisticated, very uh, dangerous weapon, right down to, you know, a shotgun uh, you know, or a 22 or whatever. Uh, you know, do you draw lines around that?
0: I mean, look, what I can tell you is any gun in the wrong hand can be deadly. And, you know, from a handgun to a hunting rifle, to a shotgun, to an automatic weapon, uh, they can all cause harm to whoever is hit with that bullet. But you're right, there are particular guns that have capabilities that allow for you to kill, frankly, more people, easier, faster, quicker than than another type of firearm. So yeah, a a rifle that can take a detachable magazine that can accept, you know, a hundred rounds of ammunition, uh, that has a, um, uh, you know, a rifle barrel that has a kind of velocity that that means that when the bullet hits the body, it's going to cause tremendous damage. And that has the type of features that allow for kind of a- assault style activities. Yeah, those are particularly dangerous. Those should be regulated because we see what happens when those weapons are in the wrong hands. And, you know, you that's when you see these kind of mass murders like we saw in Las Vegas, or we saw in Dayton, where high capacity magazines attached to a rifle can just cause kind of massive amounts of harm.
1: And so um, just want to turn now, I suppose, to how this gets done. Uh, I think we've talked a lot about the problem and some of the solutions. Of course, uh, regrettably, this is where we you know, bump up against politics um, and, and getting things changed by politicians in legislations. And, um, you know, you think you sort of touched a little bit around uh, the complexity of this issue around the bill of rights but also federal state laws different jurisdictions etc we'll stay with the federal space but every you know every town is uh i suppose the advocates for um if yeah, a change in this space and, and and dealing with this crisis of gun violence the other side of that coin um is of course uh, and every 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 uh, organization will have some kind of opponent as uh, the uh the nra so you know, uh, without giving uh, your view of them, I can imagine <laughs> I don't have a, a reasonable assessment of it, but I mean, maybe you could just give some, some, you know, how powerful is the NRA in this debate and, and how much of a roadblock are they in terms of making any meaningful change in this space?
0: I, I There's kind of three things I want to say about the NRA. You know, one is that they brought me back into this movement space. Um, You know, after my cousin was shot and killed, I did I I went right to to a gun safety organization and volunteered my time first as an intern and started kind of working more in communications and with volunteers. And then I went off to law school and and was practicing at a kind of New York law firm. And when the shooting at Sandy Hook happened, I remember seeing President Obama give his remarks and I and they were so powerful and so clear. And I thought to myself, wow, like gun violence survivors are finally being seen. We're going to see change. And then, you know, the NRA's you know, executive vice president spoke a few days later and said, there'll be no change, no way, no how. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, and I remember just thinking to myself, that can't be right. The only thing that I can offer is my time. And so I'm going to redevote myself to this organization, you know, to this mission uh, of gun safety. And once I came back, what I saw was that the NRA had really morphed itself into a whole new organization, right? When it was formed 150 years ago, it was about marksmanship and gun safety and and hunting. And then in the late 70s, it was taken over by radicals and it it became an extremist political organization that said, we're not going to stand for any regulation of any type. And when they put their thumb on the scale, you know, it made for a really tough political fight. Uh, but more recently, what they've become is they've morphed into a, a whole new organization, which is a personal piggy bank for their executives, where they have now been alleged to have engaged in shady mismanagement, um, self-dealing, and they just were in—you know—they were just in court for a week and a half, having to air all their dirty laundry, trying to escape responsibility by filing for bankruptcy that yeah, case was
1: constituting themselves in Texas or something, as I recall. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They, they wanted to escape the regulation that every organization and company should face when it comes to how their executives are spending their money. So, you know, I think they went from a, a hunting organization to an extreme organization to a corrupt organization. And, and so what do I see now? I, I see, um, you know, a national rightful association that's weaker than it's ever been. And I see my movement stronger than it's ever been. And, and so, you know, Yes, will there be a fight? Yes, will they object? Do I think we can win? Yes.
1: And so you make a strong case there for change. Now, anyone that's followed this issue would sort of identify the last time there was meaningful reform in this space was in '94 uh, under the Clinton presidency in terms of the uh, the Crime Bill then, and and, and and but it was a 10-year law that was extinguished and not renewed um, when George Bush was president. You know. You, do you think there's ever going to be something like this ever again? Because one of the things that sort of scratches, you know, I scratch my head on this a little bit, you touched on Sandy Hook and you kind of thought, "Was well, is this the moment now that America is going to say we're having our infant children being shot? Is this the moment? And yet nothing changed. And then you talked a little bit before about 90% of Americans support, you know, sensible uh, gun reforms and yet the politicians did not act. And that was probably a moment for me where I thought to myself, wow, Even if you can't trust politicians to do the right thing, you can normally trust them to do the popular thing. And so I thought to myself, man, the sectional interests in this space, the NRA, are so powerful that they can bully politicians into not following voters, 90% of voters, uh, who, who feel strongly on this issue. So I suppose, you know, what confidence do you have that there will be change from politicians given this sort of disconnect between uh, popularity or support for an issue and inaction and perhaps the way people vote?
0: Look, I think there's two lessons I've learned. One is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. There's going to be no single moment, no single incident that just flips the switch. It's going to take day in and day out organizing. And that gets to my second thing that I've learned is that, you know, this is a ladder, right? I mean, and, and at the top rung is congressional action, but we had to start climbing that ladder from the bottom. We had to start with local change. We had to start with state change. We had to start with change in the boardrooms, changes in school districts, right? We had to build this momentum from the local level on up and that's what we've been doing, right? So yeah, the bill failed after the shooting at Sandy Hook. Frankly, there was no every town at that point, no mom demand action, no six million strong organization. So we took the fight to the states. And what we saw was we were able to pass background check laws in states. We were able to pass extreme risk laws in states. We were able to pass laws keeping guns away from domestic abusers in states. And so right now, 21 states require background checks on all gun sales. 19 states have those extreme risk laws I mentioned. About 30 states have laws on domestic abusers and guns. And so Yeah, that progress is slow and the lives that are lost every single day are absolutely tragic. But do I see progress? I do. And, you know, I I see that when I look at the Congress we have now. Right. I can tell you that when Donald Trump won the presidency, the NRA thought that they were going to be replaying, you know, 2005. I bring up 2005 because after uh, George W. Bush was reelected, they thought they were going to kind of they thought and they did kind of run the show. They even they were quoted as saying, we're going to work out of the West Wing. And they passed a number of laws, including one that gave kind of very significant legal protections to bad actors in the gun industry who imperil our community through their business behaviors, right? They they kind of civil liability protection no other industry gets, right? Huge wins for them, right? They elected their president. They had their Congress. They got their win. When Donald Trump was elected, they spent more money than any other outside group. So they had their president. They had their Senate and they had their house and they thought they were gonna do the whole thing over again, right? And they were trying to pass their top priority, this thing called concealed carry reciprocity, which says if you can carry a gun in one place in this country, you can carry it anywhere. And they were all geared up to do it all over again. But what they weren't ready for is that our movement had changed. And so we stood up and we fought and we flipped so many votes in the Senate that they didn't even bring it up for a vote because they would have done worse in 2017 than they had done in 2013 on that policy. And so to me, it just shows how far our movement came. And then after that, we put in place a gun sense majority in the House of Representatives that was unafraid to pass gun safety measures. We then elected a president who ran on the boldest gun safety agenda ever and has governed like it. I mean, just today, uh, he announced a whole new set of gun safety measures that his administration was going to take to reduce uh, gun crime in our cities. And that's on top of the things that he announced in April. And we elected a gun sense Senate, putting um, Majority Leader Schumer in charge, winning two races in Georgia, where we now have a gun sense trifecta governing Washington, DC. And, and so does that mean we're gonna be able to pass everything we want? No. Does that mean we're gonna have to fight? Yes. But does that mean that this issue is radically different than how I got into it in the early 2000s? It absolutely does. And so since this is a marathon, not a sprint, and we're in it for the long haul, then we're just going to keep fighting until we kind of get to that top rung, which is congressional action.
1: Do you see um, the need for, you know, one of the things being debated quite a bit now in U.S. politics is HR and one, you know, the political reform uh, agenda and Republicans are making changes to state legislatures around rights to vote, et cetera. But do you believe um, Washington is too gridlocked? Um, to achieve uh, sensible gun uh, legislative changes? Or do you think uh, it can be done with the system as it currently exists? And and frankly, do you think it should be done in the system that currently exists so that it remains, uh, you know, I suppose broadly supported and embedded?
0: Look, we play by the rules that exist. And I do think there is opportunity for bipartisan compromise on the issue of gun safety. There was incredibly productive conversations about advancements that we could make just over the past few months by senators from both sides of the aisle. Uh, does that mean that we're going to get the, to the deal that gets enough votes to become law? Like, I, I'm not sure that's going to happen in this moment. And, you know, I hope we see a vote fairly soon. We'll, we'll get to test it out. But the truth is, we see more action and more conversation than I've ever seen before. And that's really the first step to getting a legislative deal is actually having people at the table. I can tell you when I was first in this movement space, there was no one at the table for our side. You know, even the Democratic elected Democratic leaders, senators, and representatives were on the side of the NRA. They had power in both chambers of Congress and in both parties. And, and that slowly chipped away. And right now we have a table of people who are talking about gun safety reforms. Even the last president, right, for how little he did on this issue, still took the action to ban bump stops, which is an accessory that turns a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. And I think that, that was, was after really the important.
1: Las Vegas shooting, right?
0: That was after the Las Vegas shooting because that individual climbed to that top floor. He equipped his rifles with this accessory of bum stock—and he his guns turned into machine guns. And he sprays, you know, the field of innocent folks who are at a concert. And again, something different happened in that moment that hadn't happened before. Typically, you know, maybe a president of either party would propose a regulation. And the other side would flood the our, our regulatory system with comments opposing it, saying you shouldn't do this; it's unconstitutional. You can't do that. And that's what happened at first. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, something switched, and our movement got active. And by the end of that process, that regulatory process, we had about ninety—you know—we had about seventy percent of the comments saying you should regulate these bum stocks. You should take this action. So again, it just showed that our movement is showing up and that we're doing that work to make our voices heard. And bum stocks got banned uh, and they got regulated. So, you know, while we're still fighting to get to that top rung of big, comprehensive federal legislation, I'm seeing changes that hadn't happened in 20 years all the time now.
1: And so, just wanna unpack a little bit, um, you know, like anything, I mean, you know, I would have thought the issue of the pandemic would be about politics, but somehow, you know, it's become part of this broader cultural war uh, that exists in US politics about whether you wear a mask, you don't wear a mask, whether or not you get vaccinated, you don't get vaccinated. Guns sits firmly uh, within this uh, cultural prism and has for a very long time. But you've talked a little bit about the state changes you know, I don't, know, I don't you know, I'm not familiar with it, but I imagine a lot of those changes would be, if I can call them in blue states. Um, do you see this issue of polarisation as being a problem um, in terms of actually seeking these changes in the communities that perhaps don't more sort of instantly support uh, this type of agenda? I mean, you know, I'm reminded of... Barack Obama and his, uh, uh, I'm sure he'd say he regret the comments now, off the record comments, which are never off the record about people in rural uh, America clinging to their guns and their religion um, as part of their sort of a safety net in terms of a changing world. I mean, so I suppose there's a long way of asking uh, political polarisation, how does it impact on this and is it important to try to bring those people along or do you think that's impossible in the current circumstances? I
0: think it's completely possible. And I think it's about being an advocate who meets people where they are, because the, the fact is 58 percent of Americans are survivors of gun violence of one type or another. And so there is something that unites us there. And that if we meet people where they are and we talk about our experiences of being survivors, about being advocates, about what we're actually asking for, then there's opportunity for compromise. And I have two stories, right? I mean, this isn't just kind of, I think, kind of speech. These are things that I've seen in practice. After the shooting in in a terrible shooting in Parkland, Florida, we actually saw the Republican Florida legislature take action. We saw them put in place the extreme risk law that I mentioned earlier. We saw them take another a couple of other important gun safety steps as part of a comprehensive package, right? So you then had a Republican legislature that did respond and take action. You, you could argue that Florida's a purple state, you can argue it's a red state. It definitely was run by Republicans who the NRA thought they could tell don't do anything, but they in fact did do something. Uh, in my personal experience, I've seen this up close. You know, I was working in Tennessee a few years ago, and I, I went down there to to try to, to find a kind of some gun safety solutions we could work on together. And when I got assigned to to Tennessee to work there. I thought to myself, wow, how how am I going to get anything done? Right. This is ranked the most conservative state legislature in the country. And so I went down there and I got to know people and I let them know who I was. Right. A survivor, a gun owner, someone that just wanted to hear about the issues they wanted to solve. And one of the things I heard loud and clear was domestic violence was an issue that that bothered a lot of people in Tennessee, including their elected officials. So I took a look at their gun laws. And what I saw was, yeah, they prohibit people who are domestic abusers from having guns. And, you know, but the problem was when those people went to buy a gun and failed a background check, that information sat in a database in the capital of Tennessee and didn't get to the court that issued the domestic violence order, didn't get to the law enforcement who could intervene before that person went and found a gun through a different way. So we proposed a bill, right? Worked with legislatures. I had a Democrat and a Republican working together. And we got through the Tennessee House of Representatives like this, right? Like we, we got through quickly. There was seemed to be kind of universal acceptance. I could tell you it actually passed unanimously through the Tennessee House of Representatives, a bill that was being supported by town for Gun Safety. Wow! And, and then we get to the Senate and this, this Tennessee State Senate, which, you know, the NRA thought they deeply controlled. And so we made it out of committee and we, we were about to be on the floor of the Senate with this bill. And the day before the, the vote, there was a Republican caucus meeting and in that caucus meeting the NRA's number one ally stood up and said you can't do this you can't pass you know a bill that's supported by every town for gun safety you can't change our gun laws and the sponsor was a woman stood up and said i don't know what you're talking about yes i've worked with them but i can tell you what this bill is really about it's about domestic abusers in our communities that are failing background checks that we're not doing anything to stop from getting a gun and if you don't support that, you don't support the women, daughters, sisters and mothers of the of our state. And she sat down. Powerful. And we all went to bed not knowing how that vote was gonna go the next day. And we won 26 to four. And then we had a signing ceremony with the Republican governor who I was proudly on stage with. So yeah, I see opportunity for change in states across this country. And it might not feel huge or substantial at the moment, but that's why we're on this ladder, right? We just gotta go up one rung at a time because you know, this is still a young movement, it's still a young organization, and we're just building and building and building to get to that kind of big congressional change.
1: And so one thing I just wanna sort of pivot to, and it, it, it's a little bit off topic, but directly relevant, and I talk about it a lot on the show with various different guests, is this problem of what misinformation. Um, in the in the information in the public sphere in the uh, in the social media that we consume, um, in sort of you know far right type voices. I mean, how is this impacting on the problem um, in terms of actually building consensus in achieving sensible reform? So, for example, you got that lunatic Alex Jones um, on InfoWars uh, talking about the fact that Sandy Hook didn't happen. Uh, that it was a a right yeah sorry an Obama conspiracy to try to take away people's guns I mean this sort of frankly crazy bullshit um, people then believe and then you know it sort of ferments is part of the you know uh, asking people to sort of dig in more tightly around the second amendment rights and not allow any changes Um, how do you see that problem impacting on your campaigning or is it not really one
0: Misinformation, disinformation, the inability for us to kind of agree on the facts so that we could fight for the solutions is a huge problem. The folks who are paid to kind of be public figures and intentionally trade in this disinformation are both disingenuous and disgusting. And they've completely polluted our attempts to achieve what all of us want, which is the freedom to live our lives, the freedom to be successful, the freedom to be healthy and the freedom to stay alive. And so so, yeah, I think it's a problem. And I think it's one that we have to fight fight through by showing up, being authentic and kind of being straight with people about what we're fighting for, what we believe in. Uh, But, you know, I think that's an issue that's kind of affected a lot of the things that we do. And kind of when you asked about the NRA earlier, that's the biggest roadblock to the progress. Right. It's it's not that 90 percent of people agree on this solution it's that the disinformation that gets out there makes it so it's not about that solution. It's about something else, right? I'm talking about background checks. You're talking about that. I'm trying to confiscate firearms. I'm not, that's not what the bill does. There's no argument that that's what the bill does, but all of a sudden that's what the debate becomes about. And so I think our job as advocates is to focus on the debate on on what it is and and then break through.
1: And so probably the, the other bit, and we've just talked quite a bit about Sandy Hook throughout you know, that was, to, you know, we thought it might be, is this the moment? I suppose that you, I know you've said um, there's not going to be one big moment. Um, there's not going to be a, a Port Arthur type massacre in the United States. And if that was likely, probably order it would have happened. But one thing I kind of want to get your reflections on is how do you keep people urgent on this problem? Or are people becoming numbed to this problem? It strikes me, I mean the regularity of these horrific events is now sort of pushing them further down the news cycle. They're not front page news, perhaps in the way that they once were. Um, You know, do you think people are just numb to this problem now or how do you, how do you tackle that issue?
0: I don't think people are numb at all. I mean, the advocates who I'm around are more passionate than they've ever been and, and part of it is that it's not just about the singular event, it's about the everyday gun violence that's occurring. And what we're fighting for are the solutions that, that are going to save all of those lives, right? The hundred lives a day are not made up of in, of individuals from a single mass shooting. They're shootings that happen all across this country. And so we fight for solutions that will deal with that. Because the truth is, is that gun violence in this country, especially homicide, disproportionately affects Black Americans. It disproportionately affects underserved neighborhoods. And so we got to partner and we got to stand together to fight for the resources for the community-based interventions that we know work on the one hand, while also taking action upstream to deal with the guns that are being flooded into communities.
1: And just, you know, pivoting to uh the political debate we're seeing a little bit um playing out nationally, but also local level, state level, um, law and order, crime is coming back onto the agenda in a way that it probably hasn't for a, a little bit of time now um and these things always ebb and flow how do you see that impacting um on the on the challenge because we saw you know throughout COVID, the lines for people wanting to purchase guns and you know how, how do you sort of address the challenge where people think well i'm unsafe in the community the solution's not um trying to fix uh the wrong people having weapons the solution is me having a weapon and that kind of continued escalation problem in the community and that general I suppose you know uh fear or 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 discomfort building in local communities about how safe they are at present
0: uh look everyone has a right to feel safe in their communities and that's what we have to be fighting for and the president president biden just laid out a set of steps that he was going to take at the federal level today uh that that i think get right to your question right? It's, you know, he he laid out a five pillar plan, a strategy that both deals with the flood of illegal guns into communities and the steps that we could take to get at gun trafficking, but also investing in community policing, investing in community based organizations that have been proven to be so deeply effective that they can reduce shootings by 40, 50, 60%. And, And these are just strategies that we know work but haven't been funded in a way that would make that kind of difference where a community will in fact become safer. And so I think, you know, the biggest difference I see is we have a president and we have you know a gun sense Congress that's willing to fund and fight and support for those solutions. And, and so that that to me is the hope, right? Is that we both put in place the right policies that we know work because they've been shown to work, but then we go and talk about them. So folks know that this work is happening and that we in fact have leaders in our communities that are fighting to make them safer. Uh, because if, if we don't talk about the things that we're doing, then it's easy to think that nothing's happening. And it's easy then to retreat into yourself and, and think that you're the only person that, that can help yourself to, to stay safe and to stay, stay um, in your, your home and in your community.
1: And so, I mean, you've touched on Biden's presidency. Seems that you've got some hope that he can get the job done. Do you think he can get the job done? Absolutely. And so... You know, you've, you've spoken and, and I, I, in my professional life, I, I'm a you know, union uh, campaigner. So I'm very familiar with the sort of ladders you're discussing. Probably curious about if you and I were talking five years time and what are the, you know, what are the markers look like for success in your mind? What is five years from now, What what is uh, success look like in this movement? What does success look like for, for every town when it comes to tackling uh, this horrendous problem uh, of gun violence, gun death, gun injuries um, and all the associated aftermath?
0: I mean, every town's theory of change is that by by passing laws and changing culture, we can make for a safer country. But but to me, honestly, the true marker is have we in fact saved lives? Have we in fact reduced shootings? Have we in fact made our city safer? I think that's the only measure that truly matters to me is that families don't feel like mine felt. Uh, communities don't feel like mine is felt. And and that, that is how in five years' time we can measure the success and we can measure the mark we've made. Is that in fact To your very point, people feel safer in their communities. People feel like the solutions we put in place are working, and we continue to invest in those and we continue to fight for those to to keep going down that path.
1: Now, there's no simple way for me to do this given the heavy nature of our conversation, but I am uh, prompted to do what I'm, and I'm also a shocking host. So my inability to transition to this last question we're talking about foreign policy or gun violence is notably terrible but this uh, barbecue question that i ask every guest is a compulsory question uh you're a foreign guest so you regrettably have to invite three australians to your barbecue mate but i know you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that you've been in australia so it may be easier for you than others um three aussies alive or dead at a barbecue with rob who are they and why
0: that's a great question, and it's a great transition. So, <laughs> I think my, my my first guest has to be a uh, guy named Rob Bartra, Australian, close friend. Met him at a law school, you know, over ten years ago. Stayed in touch. He works for this incredible company called Source, which uses hydro panel technology to create water out of air. It is like one of the most incredible things that. Um, that I've ever heard of. He actually partnered with Patty Mills to, to bring it to rural parts of Australia. It's an international company. They do incredible work. I don't get to see him nearly enough. And so if I had a chance to have a barbecue, he'd be guest number one. Oh. Um, I think second, I would probably be bringing in uh, Chris Hemsworth because my son and I have been watching the Marvel movies and the Thor character is just someone that, you know, my, my boy loves. And it's just, you know, I think he's a great actor and would love to kind of spend time with him and he- hear about his his roles and how he approaches his work. Um, <laughs> and, and probably the last is Neville Bonner, who I think is uh, just a, a really incredible political figure who kind of went against the odds. And uh, it would be someone that would be great to kind of learn from and hear from.
1: Well, mate, uh, a fascinating choice. Hemsworth uh, has not come up on the show yet, surprisingly enough. So uh, you're the first person to actually raise him, but uh, I'm sure he's uh, very pleased. I know no doubt that he's listening, but a a great series uh, of guests there at your barbecue. Now, mate, um, look, just uh, congratulations on all the work that you do. Um, As an Australian that's a huge uh, student of the United States, a fan of the US, I've spent a lot of time there. I've had family live there for a long time. Uh, The issue of gun violence is perplexing to me as an Australian. I think it's perplexing to many Australians. So congratulations on the work that you do. And uh, I certainly wish you all the best from uh, where I sit, mate. So thanks for coming on.
0: I appreciate the invitation. It's been a great conversation.
1: Cheers, mate. Take it easy. G'day, Diplomates fans. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Rob for coming on the show. Check out the show notes if you want to learn more about every town. Uh, they are a fantastic organisation doing some amazing things. So do check out the work that they are doing now. As ever, I do answer one uh, question um, from uh, from a listener. Uh, so this week I've got a question from Eliza. Uh, Eliza asks, Misha, what do you make of Scott Morrison being snubbed by Joe Biden at the G7? Hate to break your heart, Eliza. I've got to say that I don't believe that Joe Biden did snub Scott Morrison. Um, I know a lot of people saying this, but I actually think it's a bit of a left-wing Twitter fever dream, to be honest. Um, Yeah, look, you know, I I guess the thesis is, oh, well, Joe Biden is big on climate change. Scott Morrison is dragging his heels on climate change, not doing enough, and clearly that's true. Uh, But um, I think, really, you need to zoom out here and go, what was the purpose of Australia being at the G7? uh, Australia was invited... Um, to talk about a number of things, but the real big uh, elephant in the room or the dragon in the room uh, with the Chinese Communist Party and how to push back on that. There were other democracies invited as part of that, not just us as expanded beyond the traditional uh, G7 grouping. So um, the idea that America would uh, brush Australia or brush its leader at one of these meetings, I just think doesn't stack up to what really when you look at it is a deepening and more important relationship, not just with us and the United States, but all democracies are getting together to say, how are we going to deal with this uh, rising authoritarianism around the world, principally led by the Chinese Communist Party? So sorry to challenge the premise of the question. I don't think it happened. Do I think that um, uh, Joe Biden's likely to be cajoling Scott Morrison, the Liberal Party in the coalition government to be doing more um, on climate change? Yes, I suggest they probably are. Um, is Scott Morrison going to do that? Well, you're going to have to ask Barnaby Joyce. And on that note, I'll see you all next time. Listening to the next episode, thank you for tuning in. Take it easy. Bye.
0: You are just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favourite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz.